You're listening to Making Medicine, stories from the early stage life sciences ecosystem, a podcast that explores the people and deals that have led to the medicines, devices, and technologies that keep us healthy. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Making Medicine podcast, live from the Aspen Institute in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, Thanks for joining us for what is going to be one of the best conversations we've had on the podcast. I'm your host, John Stanford. Uh, and I have the real pleasure to be here with someone who I ran into at the uh, at the health summit at the Aspen Institute, uh, and that's Dr. Jerome Adams. He's currently the director of Purdue's Health Equity Work. Um, he's mostly known as the 20th Surgeon General of the United States, which of course makes him likely the only person on the podcast who will ever wear the title Vice Admiral. <laughs> and before that, he was Indiana's health commissioner. Um, so there could not be a more leading voice in the state of healthcare in the United States, and certainly a leader on health equity issues, which is what we're going to get into. So, um, Dr. Adams, thanks for joining us. Well, really glad to be with you, be here with you today. It's a great time to be talking about health equity. It's an exciting time to be talking about health equity, and where better to do it than Aspen? That's that's absolutely right. As we uh, sit uh, recording this podcast, you know, we are just absolutely in one of the most stunningly beautiful places. Uh, and having important conversations. And I had the pleasure of sitting in with Dr. Adams and a handful of other leading folks from industry, from academia, from science, talking about this concept of health equity. And I thought you made so many good points on the panel, which we're going to unpack today on the podcast. But let's start with that all-famous question of the contemporary moment. What, When we say health equity, which has come to mean something different to everyone else, what does it mean to Dr. Adams? Well, health equity uh, at its core means people have uh, appropriate and fair opportunities to make um, make good decisions about their health. And we talked about being here in Aspen. Aspen has some of the best health rankings of any place in the United States. Why is that? Well, um, you've got a lot of affluent residents who have the ability to uh, purchase the things that they need to support their health. They have the ability to, uh, to eat uh, healthy foods. They have the ability to get out and go skiing or exercise if they need to. And uh, we know that in many communities across America, both rural and urban, that folks don't have those opportunities. So quick story that I love to tell about my own daughter. My daughter's 12. She likes to spend a little bit too much time on her devices. And when she does, I say, Millie, give me your phone. Go out, ride your bike. I don't want to see you for an hour. That actually makes me a good dad because I'm lowering her diabetes rates. I'm promoting her mental health. But I can do that because we live in a neighborhood where we have sidewalks, complete streets, where the neighbors know her, where I'm not worried about her getting accosted by someone. You go six miles away from where I live to downtown Indianapolis, different dad, different 12-year-old daughter. Um, He sends his daughter out and says, I don't want to see you for an hour give me your phone. That's actually child neglect. Why? Because that's a community where they don't have complete streets. That daughter could get hit by a car. That's a community that is rife with crime, where she may get shot or she may get accosted by, uh, by someone. And we need to understand that everyone wants to make healthy choices, but we don't always have an opportunity to make healthy choices. And as director of health equity at Purdue University, one of the things I'm trying to do is figure out how we can create communities where more people have those healthy choices. Uh, One other quick point I'd make is there's a difference between equity and equality. Equality is everyone getting the same thing. So you and I entered this building 
the same way. Um, there are steps to get into a building. That's equal. But what if you're in a wheelchair? Can you get in that building now? Um, no. So you may need a ramp to get into that building. Does everyone need a ramp to get into that building? No. So equality doesn't always get us to the place we need to be where people can actually access the services they need. We need to look at communities and figure out what do you need to be able to make a healthy choice and understand that if we give it to them, more people are going to make those choices. I I think that's such a good way of framing it because one – sort of the pushing easy button of this conversation is, okay, well, we'll just give everybody the same thing. And I think you made really good points that actually that's that's not going to get us any closer to solving the problem. And I think that the side-by-side side of what you laid out, your neighborhood and just one neighborhood over, um, I'm paraphrasing a bit. I don't remember if it was you or someone else on the panel. But for some folks, we just make it damn hard to make good choices. And that's what tackling health equity. That was me. Sorry for cursing on the panel. But, but it, it frustrates me because we talk about personal responsibility. And I 100% believe in personal responsibility. But I believe uh, the choices we make are dependent on the choices we have in front of us. And we've got to realize some people only have bad choices in front of them. And they're choosing from, uh, from, from an array of bad choices. And other people have an array of good choices And we want to make sure everyone has that opportunity to make a good choice. Yeah, I think for anyone not really familiar with or thinks it's too hard of an issue to tackle, I think you lay it out really clearly that that's what we've just got to give people the opportunity to make good choice. And that doesn't currently exist. But um, something else I took away is you talked about health equity you know, not just in the context of race. We spend a lot of time because we have so many systemic racial issues, but you've also talked about health equity being bigger than that. Can you, can you go a little bit more into that? I really do think it's important that we understand that we all fit under the tent in different ways and in different times when we're talking about health equity. And you're right. A lot of the conversation is focused on race and, um, And appropriately so, because we have ignored uh, systemic racism for far too long. But that said, when I'm talking about health equity, I'm talking about people who live in rural communities who may not have access to health care. I'm talking about gender issues. And we know that men and women have differential health status in different ways. I'm talking about ageism. And do people who are extremely young or extremely old um, bear a disproportionate burden of disease? And look at COVID. Yeah. Look at look at who was last to get vaccinated um, on the one end and on the other end, look who been hardest hit by this pandemic and then ask yourself, are our policies um, reflecting a commitment to making sure the most vulnerable among us have uh, the opportunities to make healthy choices and live a long, healthy life? I'm talking about people with disabilities. Uh, I gave the example of the wheelchair. Um, uh, th- that That's health equity. Um, looking at veterans, we know that veterans have poorer health, higher rates of mental health issues, higher rates of suicidality. Um, looking at these particular populations, uh, we, when we look at the data, see disparities. And those disparities often relate back to the communities and the circumstances these folks are in and the choices that they have or don't have. I want to cast memory back a little bit, you know, talk thinking of your time as Surgeon General and, you know, how what an incredible role, and and I think we could fill multiple podcasts with your experiences. We could use but, other adjectives besides incredible, <laughs> but uh, man, I'm blessed to have been to to have, to have been able to serve. 
and and you come at this fascinating time because of course at the end of your tenure um you know of course covid all healthcare equals covid but of course when you took came in in 2017 we weren't thinking about covid we weren't necessarily thinking about pandemics and if i remember correctly one of the things you really wanted to champion which i think is going to define the next decade was mental health um and you know w- where do we go from here work here as a country, what do we need to do to begin to tackle mental health? Because I know that was a real priority of yours um, before, of course, COVID took over. Uh, great question. And I often say a long time ago, we cut the head off from the rest of the body. And what I mean when I say that is if you have a problem from your neck down, your primary care physician will see you now and your insurance will pay for it. If you have a problem um, above your neck, <clears throat> whether it's vision health or auditory health or dental health, or mental health, it's, eh, we don't know if your insurance is going to cover it. Eh, we're not going to be able to get you in for uh, for four to six weeks or four to six months. And we need to understand you can't be healthy um, in the rest of your body if you're not mentally, emotionally, and spiritually healthy. So one of the things I've focused on as Surgeon General is really um, talking about integrative health care. We do an assessment for your blood pressure, for your heart rate, for your reflexes when you come in for your physical exam. We should be doing a mental health assessment at the same time. That is from the healthcare perspective. But we also need to understand, again, going back to those opportunities for health, that our mental health is determined by the communities that we live in. If you live in a community where there are gunshots ringing all the time and you're constantly under stress, that's going to lead to poor mental health and poorer physical health. Um, We need to understand that when you make greener communities, a concept called greening, it's been shown that you lower the rate of firearm injuries in those communities. Uh, You lower the chances that someone is going to commit or be a victim of a horrific act. And so there are things that we can do at the community level to really focus on um, mental health and wellness. And that's one more point I want to tease out. We talk a lot about mental illness and mental health from a deficit standpoint. Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Do you have bipolar disorder? Do you have schizophrenia? That's important. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is what are the resilience factors that we have in your community that allow you to maintain health so that you don't become anxious, you don't become depressed. And as children, we know that having a positive adult role model in your life is a predictive factor positively for mental health. We know that playing youth sports is important. And so it's why I'm involved with the uh, uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame's Health Advisory Committee and why I'm such a proponent of sports and why I've coached all my kids in sports. We need to look at these protective factors uh, that, that exist in communities that have better health and try to make those resources available to all communities. Well, and I think the linkage between everything you've talked about so far is so obvious that there is, that mental health health equity, you name it, it all gets to this broader sense that we have to make some serious changes in this country and, and even globally to to enable people to have the most fulfilling lives that they can. And what I've liked about, you know, I've come to a couple of your sessions, you even talked about gun violence and and that comes into this conversation as well. And your point about greening is is well taken. Um, and so I, I commend you on being able to draw out that linkage? Because I think sometimes we just say, oh, we're going to have a mental health summit. All the mental health advocates get together and then we're going to have a separate 
well-being summit and we're going to have a separate health equity summit and and yeah, a separate talking- cancer summit and a separate diabetes summit. And the fact is, if we get upstream and build healthier communities, then we won't need to have all those summits because we'll lessen the occurrence and severity of all of those problems. There's a quick story I want to tell, and we tell it in public health. Uh, there was a man sitting by the side of a stream, and someone uh, was floating down the stream, and they were drowning. And the man jumped in, fished him out, um, saved his life. Uh, they're sitting there, and then another person comes down the stream, and they're drowning. And the man jumps in, um, fishes him out, saves his life. And this happens over and over, and a crowd builds, and they're cheering on the gentleman who's saving life after life after life. And the gentleman finally just stands up and walks away. And they say, well, what are you doing? There's more people in the stream. He says, I'm going upstream to find out why all these people are falling in in the first place. And I think it's important for us to understand that we aren't going to solve these problems playing whack-a-mole or focusing solely on fishing people out of the stream uh, at the back end. We've got to get upstream and figure out why the heck people are falling in in the first place. And if we do that, it's actually shown to be more cost-effective. It's actually shown to be um, more practical. uh, And people will live longer lives. Uh, But unfortunately... In the United States, we don't have a health care system. We have a sick reimbursement system. And, and our system waits until you get sick, till you've fallen in the stream. And then we have all these convoluted systems for cost, uh, cost shifting uh, to pay people to fish you out of the stream. But we don't have systems in place to pay someone to stand at the front of the stream and keep people from falling in in the first place. That's, that parable is so... I I think exactly where we are because for whatever reason, the way the system is now, we will let people deteriorate to a place where they will cost the system. We're going to turn to economic benefits in a second, um, but I I think that that's such a good example and I think your work could be described as you're walking upstream. You're trying to figure out why people are falling in in the first place. And it's hard. It is, it is so hard because I, the other thing I love about that parable is because it's shocking. It's jarring to us to think that someone is walking away from folks who are drowning in the stream. And it's a real challenge. We've got to figure out how to do both at the same time. We've got to save lives. Look at the opioid epidemic. We want to give people naloxone. We want to prevent them from dying from an opioid overdose. But we don't want to focus on that so much that we forget about prevention efforts so that people don't become addicted to opioids in the first place. We have got to figure out how to do both and how to compensate people for and do research on and develop plans for prevention while we also focus on treatment, which gets all the attention. Which, which brings me to, I think, some of the compelling work you did towards the end of your time uh, as Surgeon General. Um, you looked into... Not not just the business of healthcare, which we talk about a great deal on this podcast, um, but just the role of business in the employer. You, um, this report came out uh, in 2020. We'll make sure it's up on the Incubate website with the the podcast. I'm sorry, maybe it came out uh, early 2021, but it I, I know it. Can you tell us a little bit about um, this work you did with Darden, the great business school at the University of Virginia? As a William & Mary guy, I'm disappointed uh, to, <laughs> to say – to talk about Darden. But tell us, tell us a little bit about the report and some of the interesting takeaways from it. Well, the report is called Community Health and Economic Prosperity. And it's really about making the business case for building healthier communities. Uh, I've run a state health department 
I've been Surgeon General of the United States. And I've found that over and over again, when health is pitted against business, health loses. Uh, When you look at the climate change discussion, uh, we all want to leave a better world for our kids than the world that, that was given to us. But we're not willing to pay the economic cost to, uh, to actually make that happen. When you look at tobacco, everybody knows tobacco's bad for you. A three-year-old knows tobacco's bad for you. But that said, we still can't get rid of cigarettes or raise uh, tobacco taxes. In Indiana, we've had um, the, the same low tobacco taxes for two decades. Why? Because every time we try to raise them, uh, the business community, the mom and pop bars, the gas stations, the casinos come in and say, well, that's all well and good. We know it's unhealthy, but hey, you're going to cost jobs in our state. You're going to cost you're going to hurt our economy if you just force people to go over the border to Kentucky and buy their cigarettes instead of buying them at gas stations in Indiana. And so uh, I that didn't ring true to me. And the reason why it didn't ring true to me is because we know that the number two expense for all businesses that provide employer provided insurance, which is 50 percent of, uh, of, of insurance in this country, uh, the number two expense is health care. If you were going to uh, uh, create a product and you needed to source materials, would you move and, and, and put your, your company in a place where those source materials cost twice as much as, as, as somewhere else? Well, we're doing that right now in the United States. The U.S. spends twice as much money on health care per capita than any other OECD or rich nation. And you might say, well, but we have great health care in the U.S., And depending on how you look at it, um, we do. There's nowhere else in the world I'd rather be um, if I have a cancer diagnosis, for instance. But that health care is not equitably distributed, and it is still very far downstream. Um, Proof of this, we spend twice as much as any other country on health care. But in 1995, those other countries that spend less than us actually surpassed us in life expectancy. We have the highest suicide rates in the world. We have the the, uh, highest obesity rates in the world, we are not getting our ROI, our return on investment, and that is hurting the competitiveness of businesses. Um, from an expense point of view, number one. Number two, we're in the midst of a great resignation. Uh, workforce is a uh, big issue, and many people have checked out of the workforce due to health issues, due to addiction, due to mental health issues, due to diabetes, due to these health concerns that they have, if you don't have a a healthy pool to choose from, uh, then you're not going to be able to maintain a healthy workforce. Uh, Shocking stat, and this isn't um, a a particularly work, uh, a a business issue, but um, if you look at the military as as a workforce, 7 out of 10 of our 18 to 24-year-olds in this country are ineligible for the military. 71%. Why? Because they can't pass the physical, can't meet the educational requirements, or have a criminal background record. In other words, because they have poor mental and physical health. And so the military is seeing it. All of our other companies are seeing it. Uh, that's why I worked with the UVA Darden School of Business to put together this first-of-its-kind Surgeon General's report. Why is it the first-of-its-kind? Because every other Surgeon General's report that's been written is written in health um, lingo for a health mm-hmm. audience. Uh, And uh, uh, we've got to stop preaching to the choir 
and we've got to go out and, and, and create some new converts. And so I worked with the business community to, say, to figure out, okay, number one, what type of language do you all use? What motivates you? And one of the big motivators is workforce. It's healthcare costs and it's workforce. Um, and are there some examples out there of people who are actually doing this? And there were some great examples. Uh, Starbucks, uh, Patagonia, companies that, that you know. Amazon really expanded its benefits for, for women so that they could stay in the, uh, in the workforce. But then there are also um, middle and small size companies. So a uh, uh, great example is, is Grayston Bakery in Yonkers, New York. And uh, they have a, uh, a open application process um, where they don't um, make you put down your, your criminal history, your work history. They just say, if you want to work here, just put your name down. And when we uh, have a job opening, we'll call you up and they call you up. And if you still want to work, you come in. And instead of spending money screening people out of the process, they actually spend that money on job training mm-hmm. and on social workers on site. And they found that their employees are more loyal, uh, miss less time from work, and are more productive than employees at other co- uh, companies who've, who've spent thousands of dollars screening people out. Uh, the, the point there being there's a better way to do things. And when, when companies invest in healthier communities, they actually see a healthier bottom line. Which I, I completely agree. We talk a lot on this show about capital and I talk a lot about capital flowing like water and I tell policymakers, you, there's really not going to be too many surprises out of the business community. For better or for worse, they're fairly rational actors and we can tend to know what we're, we're going to do. I think um, – one, I want to commend you. In, in your time, you were thinking about mental health. And you were thinking about the linkage between healthcare and business as it relates to a workforce. Here we are facing a mental health crisis and a workforce crisis. So you have some crystal ball with um, where you were trying to take uh, the government um, in your leadership role. Well, and, and I want to jump in really quickly there because you say the business community is rational, and I agree with that. But the problem is um, you can't make rational decisions if you don't have the data. And people don't respond to – health metrics to hemoglobin A1C and systolic blood pressure, the way they respond to business metrics. We know this. The number one issue, Democrat or Republican, black or white, rural or urban, that people vote on in elections consistently, including the last election, is actually uh, the economy. Number one issue in the last presidential election wasn't COVID. It was economic recovery. And so we've got to speak to people in a way that resonates with them. And that starts with collecting the data. We need to do studies that show, hey, we didn't just lower your blood sugar by 10%. We increased your workforce productivity or lowered your absenteeism at work. We need to look at those types of measures so that people can make rational decisions moving forward. Uh, another problem that we have is that, again, people think of health as health care. But health care, what happens in a hospital or a clinic, that's only about 20% of what determines your overall health. What actually determines 80% of your health are things like transportation mm-hmm. or things like uh, like paid time off. Uh, so you're not going to go to the doctor's office if you don't have paid time off uh, or things like, like child care um, uh, or, or things like do you have a living wage or are you having to work uh, three jobs to get by and so you don't have time to go get your COVID vaccination or you don't have time to take your kid in for their checkup. 
When we invest in healthier communities, we actually see those social determinants of health is what we call those community determinants of health improve. And that actually does more to, uh, to create healthier people and healthier societies than increasing access to health care. Um, the number one reason uh, for inpatient diabetes admissions isn't people not getting insulin, again, fishing people out of the stream on the back end. It's actually making sure they have access to affordable, healthy foods. We see emergency room admissions go up at the end of every month. Why? Because people's checks run out and they run out of food and then their blood sugars get out of whack and they get admitted to the hospital and we pay thousands of dollars to stabilize their, their blood sugar and then we send them back home again and wait for it to happen the next month. We can't do that anymore. Well, I think you tapped into something there because we're sitting here with all the thought leadership of the healthcare world. And even some of the conversations I've had were so grounded, many MD, PhDs here who are grounded in health lingo. What your report said is, look, employers big and small are going to be one of the key factors in how we live our lives. If we're speaking a language they don't understand, the language of A1C, we're not going to get them to take the steps they need. And we're not going to get to healthy communities if our employers are not pushing for healthy communities. And so I just – I. I think the report is a good starting point for a conversation um, because I think the business community has got a tremendous role to play in advancing these communities. And we've also seen that that businesses that invest in ESG, environmental, social and governance policies, perform better in the stock market. So we're, we're starting to see that they, they have a better brand reputation. People want to invest in them and people want to buy their products. The new generation of, of, of young adults out there, uh, they want to know if I'm going to spend my money on this shirt or on this car or, or on whatever, uh, they want to know um, what, what are the goals, the, the ideals that this company is committed to. Are they committed to sustainability? Are they committed to local hiring? Are they committed to the thing? And they don't mind paying a little bit more for a product if they know that, that the company um, is being, being responsible. So incredibly important. But uh, I want to wrap, wrap that, uh, that section up with a, another story that I love to tell. I was in uh, Columbia, South Carolina with Mayor Benjamin, who's mm-hmm. the mayor there. And um, uh, he was hosting the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And we were talking about walkable communities. And so I had um, uh, Mayor de Blasio from New York, Mayor Benjamin, and a host of mayors from around the country. And uh, we were talking about why mayors created uh, walkable communities. And uh, I asked the question, I said, how many of you all ran for office on um, lowering your community's hemoglobin A1C rates by 15 percent? Not a single mayor raised their hand. I'm a doctor. I'm a public health person. Why not? You know, we know that that's a big problem. And what I was told by those mayors is they created walkable communities not to lower hemoglobin A1C rates. They created walkable communities because it creates foot traffic downtown and increases business productivity, more customers. Um, It's because when you have walkable communities that are well lit, you have less violence downtown. So safety, security. Property values go up, so people's houses are worth more. These are the reasons that mayors create walkable communities. And, oh, guess what? Don't tell them. It lowers their hemoglobin A1C rates in the community, too. But we've got to learn to speak in the language that motivates those folks. Well, I, I think that's a place of enormous alignment because where I just think you're so right. It is, like you said, voters choose on economic issues. Businesses look at economic indicators. We can't have healthcare ignore that. Good health care is also going to be a good – do well, do good by doing well, do 
well by doing good. I, I think it, it plays out here. I want to I want to close with two things. Um, I'll, 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 I'll give you the, the closing question we normally give people, but everyone's got to hear this quote that I wrote down from you yesterday and I need to find it actually in front of me. Um, and it was – make sure I get this right. People need to know you care before they care about what you know. Tell, tell me about that. I was so struck by that. Well, um, uh, again, and with apologies, I love stories. So I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I, I became famous or infamous in the uh, <laughs> health world because I was running the Indiana State Department of Health when we had the largest HIV outbreak related to injection drug use in the history of the United States. Scott County, Indiana, rural community about two hours south of Indianapolis, um, about 4,000 people in this uh, community of Austin, Indiana, all white, farm community. I've never had um, more than one case of HIV in a year. And in just over a year, we had over 200 cases of HIV related to injection drug use. And the solution uh, from a public health standpoint was to implement a syringe service program. But that was illegal in Indiana, and it was socially, culturally not a place the community wanted to go to. I could have used my public health authority as state health commissioner to go down and start passing out needles. But guess what? Uh, the local sheriff actually told me if you did that, I would have just set up a roadblock, you know, uh, <laughs> a, a, a little bit outside of your your uh, your your syringe service program and pulled people over as they were coming in and out and checked them for syringes and drugs. And that would have shut down your program. So uh, what did I have to do? Well, I had to get out of Indianapolis, my ivory tower and drive two hours each way every day and go down there and have lunch with people. I have beer with I have a beer with with people. Go on a ride along with the with the sheriff and the police chief. Go to church with them. I had to show them that I cared. And once I created that relationship, that connection, because I grew up in a rural community much like Scott County, um, I understood the challenges that they faced. My own brother suffers from substance use disorder, as uh, some of your listeners may know. Once I created that connection, that opened the the the, the doorway for having conversations about what we needed to do to respond to the HIV crisis. And we were able to get to a place where Scott County opened up a syringe service program. It changed the state law in Indiana subsequently. And then Kentucky went from zero to 70 syringe service programs, neighboring Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Ohio doubled their number of syringe service programs. Conservative states like Arizona and Florida um, were open to the idea of harm reduction. And so I got criticized by a lot of pure health advocates for moving too slow. But if I had moved too fast, it would have destroyed any ability I had to create trust, to show people that I cared, and they would have, wouldn't have given a darn about what I knew. Uh, and so uh, I really do believe that quote, um, and I try to live by it, that once you show people that you care, then people will care what you know. And I think there's just not enough of that out there now. We want to hammer people with the data. And oh my gosh, you're an idiot because you don't see how many people are dying from guns. Or you're stupid because you don't understand the impact of, of prescription opioids um, on, on, on the addiction crisis that we have in our country. Or oh my gosh, can't you understand how many women are dying for lack of, 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 of women's health mm -hmm. um, services? The data is important, but just as important are those relationships. Well, and I think we could extrapolate that to almost any aspect of American society right now. And you have lived not just talking the talk but walking the walk of building that trust. And we don't 
especially in the healthcare community, we throw so much data around and don't invest the time and energy in building that trust. Um, I don't want to close on because that trust will be built. Good people like you and others will keep building that trust in in neighborhoods, network cities, and across the country. But I want to close uh, on a positive note. Um, whether it's in your personal life, your work at Purdue on health equity, um, you know, as being a healthcare leader in this country, what's what's something you're optimistic about? You're looking forward to. You think we're making moves in the right direction? Well, um, really quickly, I, I'm optimistic that more people even are talking about health equity. Purdue, I'm their first ever director of health equity. Um, the board and President Daniels um, felt strongly enough about it that they brought me on and hired me. Um, here at the Ideas Festival, we're talking with many other companies who um, two years ago didn't have a health equity director and they've hired someone because they now mm-hmm. see that it is a business imperative for them to be thinking about these issues. So that's one thing I'm incredibly excited about. I'm also excited because I believe in in disruptive innovation. Uh, we don't change things when the, when the seas are calm and when the ship is just cruising along. We need a little storm. We need a little wind to say, okay, we're going to change our course. And while everyone admits the system, a uh, healthcare system in the United States is broken, no one has been willing to take the bold steps necessary to uh, to, to change course. Well, COVID really shook us up. And it caused us to, to do some things that I think are going to pay dividends down the road. So, for instance, telehealth. We were paying for about 10,000 telehealth visits per week via CMS pre-pandemic. At the peak of the pandemic, that was up to a million visits per week. You have 38 times the amount of telehealth services being provided now as you did pre-pandemic. That's going to change the way care is delivered for mental health, for physical health, and for vulnerable communities across the nation. Uh, We know that times of crisis spur us to make good changes, and so I'm excited about that. And the final thing I'm excited about is our young young population. Uh, The young people out there now, I've had a chance to speak with many of them here in Aspen, and uh, they think differently. Um, They think much more about the world that they're living in and their impact on that world, even if all you're hearing about are us old fogies, the adults out there arguing over our individual and personal rights and freedoms. And we need to find that right balance. But I think the young people out there understand that they aren't going to have that ability to make good individual choices if they don't have an environment around them that is supportive and that is healthy. And so I think they're going to lead the way I think they're going to continue to to forge change and to demand change. And I think ultimately we're going to see that we're going to be in a better place um, uh, moving forward. Um, uh, and it's not to dismiss the tragedy of, of, of lives lost and people harmed from COVID, but it is to say that shame on us if we don't recognize the opportunity to, uh, to, to turn some of those negatives into um, positives in terms of fixing the broken parts of our system that, that have existed for far too long. Well, I think that brings us back full circle that the work you're doing, the work we should all be doing is enabling people to make good choices, removing the bad choices. And you are right. There is a silver lining of any crisis and it is an it is opportunity and it's opportunity we have to seize. Um, He is Dr. Jerome Adams, currently the director at Purdue for Health Equity. He was the 20th Surgeon General of the United States. Um, He's joined me today here at Aspen Ideas uh, at the Aspen Institute. 
Um, I am so grateful for the time, Dr. Adams. This is without a doubt one of the most informative and best episodes we've done. So thank you. Well, it's been wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity. And the one accolade you didn't mention is that I'm a dad. And so I've got a, a 18, a 16, and a 12-year-old. And my 18-year-old just had a birthday. So happy birthday, Caden. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity to be on today. Happy birthday, indeed. We've celebrated, uh, we've celebrated being dads uh, in our conversations. And I love that you bring so much of your personal life to your work. So thanks for being here. And as always, thanks to our listeners. Um, you can learn more about Incubate at www.incubatecoalition.org. Uh, thanks to our incredible team helping produce this podcast. And as always, keep innovating. You've been listening to Making Medicine. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves.